Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for affording us another day to study your word, to be saved and sanctified in this very moment by means of your grace through faith. We thank you for giving us said faith, Father, for as your word states, faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of Christ. Father, we pray for the pristine objective of the church, that is, to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And we pray that the persecution we might suffer as evangelists be overcome, and that the proof of our faith be learned as a part of our sanctification. We pray also, Father, for those unable to be with us this morning, that this message find a place in their souls and that they embrace it when they find it there. We pray especially for the lost, Father, that by whatever means necessary they cry out the way your child, the tax collector, did so long ago when he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the gospel, salvation, and sanctification, I'm beginning to wonder when the series might close up. Is that even a fair question? Is that something we ought to be concerned with prematurely? Or should we just not rush things and enjoy the ride? We began Thursday's lesson with an interesting twist on perspective. We've been doing an awful lot of surveying of Scripture on the topic of faith. And I find this particularly useful since a fresh perspective can often unlock a deeper understanding of the doctrines in the Bible. That's one of the key benefits of Wednesday night Bible studies, that you get a plethora of perspectives, different perspectives, same Bible. We're all sitting there facing each other with our Bibles in front of us. We talk about a certain question, and pretty much everyone, although they're agreeable in the general sense, has a different perspective on the topic because they have different lives. They've been called to walk different lives, to different, quote, as the Bible says, conditions. And it's a wonderful thing, and that's why I keep encouraging the Wednesday night Bible studies. If you're missing them, please reconsider them. They're fantastic. It's a wonderful way to gain new perspective on things that you might think you have nailed or that maybe aren't quite as deep as they could be in your own soul in terms of rooting you uh, in the concepts in the Bible. In any case, here's that perspective, that twist, if you would. We personified faith. If faith were a person, who and what would it be if it was forced to abide in things seen and not the unseen? In other words, if there were two realms, the seen and the unseen, and you forced faith to live in only the seen, where would that leave faith? Would it be happy, knowing that its greatest contribution to the world has 
or was being missed out on? I mean, in other words, where does faith, if we're to personify faith, where does faith thrive? In the unseen. How much faith does it take, in other words, to have faith in, okay, is this lip balm? Yeah. Why? Because you can see it. Not a whole lot of faith, other than you running up here and saying, yep, okay, it is, and then i got to give it to you because you put your lips on it. But, you know. <laughs> There's a lot more faith. Pretend you I didn't show you that. And suppose I said, all right, you know how fond I am of Burt's Bees. Suppose I said, I have a whole jar, a 50, uh, not a 50-gallon drum, a gallon jar of Blistex up here. Well, where is it? That would be the first thing. Come on. Where is it? You'd want to see it, right? Otherwise, you'd have to have faith in my words because you don't see it. Well, what's a greater faith? This or me just saying I have something up here that you can't see? So it's interesting because if we were to personify faith, you have to ask yourself, well, if in your life your faith is only in things seen, what does that say? Where does that leave you? Don't be guilty about it, but the probing issue is where does that leave you? If you have very little faith in things unseen, where does that leave your sense of confidence? Isn't this, I mean, anybody lived 2,000 years ago? No. Anybody yet lived in the millennium? No. Anybody here been to heaven and back? No. So all these things are unseen. Our entire faith is in things unseen. So if you're waiting around for, you know, let me see this, let me see that, you're going to be missing out. So I walked you through an analogy on Thursday asking how many vehicle owners actually know how their vehicle takes them from point A to point B. Most admittedly will say, I you know, really don't know, other than when I press on the gas pedal, the motor ignites fuel and it turns it into power that turn, it turns my wheels and I'm off and running. That's the extent of it for most of you, correct? Push the gas pedal, go. And then, you know, you might say whenever I press the brake pedal, the car stops. Oh, and I think there are some brake pads or something that make that happen. In brief, most of you have very little, a very little idea about the complexity of the systems that whip you down the highways at high speed. Yet you put your very life and your family and friends' lives in the hands of this big hunk of metal that you know very little about. We have a word for that. It's called faith. Anybody been in an airplane? How does a multi-ton chunk of metal go in the air? Seriously. You have some faith, don't you? Do you understand how that works? I do. But do you? Most of you have no idea how that works. But yet, you get on a plane for a couple hundred bucks and say, hey, put my life in your hands for the next few hours. And give me one of those little, tiny little V8 juices while you're at it. 
If you want to spike it, it's up to you. Saying a little vodka. Having a little faith issue up here. You can see the beads of sweat. As we've learned from Scripture, faith can be described as being in things not seen. That's what Hebrews 11.1 says. In the Amplified, it reads, Now faith is the assurance, title, deed, confirmation of things hoped for, divinely guaranteed, and the evidence of things not seen, the conviction of their reality. Faith comprehends as fact what cannot be experienced by the physical senses. That's where faith thrives, in the unseen. The point is simple, and we're using, we're borrowing from the car analogy, faith takes us everywhere. You don't need to understand every last aspect of the inner workings of a vehicle in order to have faith, have the faith necessary for it to take you from point A to point B. Isn't that analogous to faith, by grace through faith? That might be our vehicle. And sanctification being our destination. In other words, you get in the car, you have faith you're going somewhere. Well, where are you going? When you move from point A to point B, that's what sanctification means. But as we're going to talk about a little bit more this morning, you don't just jump in a car and drive nowhere. Some would say, yes, I do, but stop being difficult. right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You typically get in a car with a place to go, right? It's just an analogy. You don't need to know every last detail in the Bible to be sanctified. You know what you need? You need faith. You need faith. Is that something you can manufacture? No. Where do you get it? God gives to each a measure of faith. God gives grace to the humble. He's opposed to the proud. So if you want this precious thing by which grace flows, it's got to be from God. But here's the deal. You don't have to know every last detail in the Bible to have that happen. He's looking for humble hearts. Now, the power of godly faith is described in Scripture also, thank God. Go to Philippians 4.11. Philippians 4.11. You have this earnest desire to get to point B in your life. You want to be sanctified. You want to understand what the end goal of all this is. You've finally resigned to the fact that God left you here. And think of all our work over the past few months for a purpose that you've been predestined for a purpose. That you're going to go through all this suffering for a purpose, not just to show how tough you are, but for a reason. (coughs) Philippians 4.11, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now, I've seen a lot of the... I've seen bumper stickers. I've seen more elegant scripture on the rear view of like caravans going down the road. You know, and people love Philippians 4.13. But I wonder how many people actually have faith to couple with that. Or is it just a punchline? I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. We know that Scripture says that's a fact. 
But there's a little thing called faith in such a statement. Only a faithful person will humbly cling to this. So our first twist on perspective is this, again, to personify faith. If faith were a person, who and what would it be if it was forced to abide in things seen and not the unseen? Would it be, quote, happy? Knowing that its greatest contribution to the world was being missed out on. I mean, what's a greater show of faith? Hey, this is Burt's Bees, or I have a gallon can of Blistex that you can't see. What's a greater show of faith? If faith were a person, and he or she wanted to be and fulfill his or her own mission to the fullest, wouldn't, it want, wouldn't he want you to have faith in the thing that you can't see? Yeah, that's what Scripture tells us. The second perspective, so that was the first twist on perspective, for lack of a better way of saying it. The second perspective we pondered was this, walking by faith. If you have faith, will you do anything other than walk by it? That's a good question. Now, let me qualify that statement, because you all say, but I have faith, but yet I do the things I don't want to do, and you'll quote Romans 7, and I get that. But that's not what the Spirit's getting at. He wants you to consider the extremes here. He wants you to say, but what if I had perfect faith? Would I even, think about that, would I even ever, quote-unquote, be able to do anything but what was right if my faith was perfect? I'd be so glued to it, in other words. And just by virtue of being so glued to it, I'd never stray. So if you have faith, will you do it? anything other than walk by. In other words, if God gives us faith, which he does, and suppose that that faith were 100% pure in us, and I speak as a man because that's not going to happen in time for any of us, isn't that faith the means of our perseverance? Some look at that as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. I don't care if you understand that level of it at this juncture. It's not that important to our current study, but it is related It's why people persevere. To whatever degree you have faith, and we know that God gives us faith, you will persevere. You won't do anything else other than persevere. So isn't that faith the means of our perseverance? It is. If it were totally pure, would we ever be motivated to do anything other than God's will? And we looked at 2 Corinthians 5-7, Romans 8-1-9, Galatians 5-16-17. And this is sort of for lack of a better term, nebulous, right? Because we're never going to experience this. But Jesus did. And He's our prototype. And He's the one who sympathizes with us. So before we consider the perfectly faithful God-man, let me give you a little theology on this, just to neatly organize your thoughts. Some of you are familiar with this, some of you are not. It's not important. I don't expect you to memorize Latin, but you might hear these phrases... Uh, depending on how much you read and this kind of a thing. Sinability, and this is in the Latin, non posse peccari, not able to sin. In other words, not even able to sin. That's God. God cannot sin because He's perfect and He's perfectly righteous and He's God. That's non posse peccari, not able to even sin. But then we have posse non peccari, able not to sin. That was Jesus and his humanity, and even the regenerate. There are times when you are tempted, but guess what? 
You don't sin. Lo and behold, you're able not to sin. You know the right thing to do. The law has been impressed on your heart. Maybe it's a love situation. You say, I know the right thing to do out of love is not do that thing, even though I'm being a self-absorbed, self-centered individual right now. The right thing to do is not do that out of love. So I won't. And that's a righteous good deed. Even though you attempted to do the other thing. That's posse non-pacari, able not to sin. We'll get back to that. And then there's non-posse non-pacari, which is not able not to sin. And that's a realm exclusive to even the unregenerate. Whatever is not from faith is sin, in other words. Okay? The unregenerate, that's what they do. They sin. They think they're being righteous, but it's all garbage. It's all filthy rags. So let's focus on the phrase, able not to sin. First, Jesus is the only human being to ever master this, to ever be master of this statement, able not to sin. And we know this from Scripture. Go to Hebrews 4.15. We know that Jesus is the master of posse non pecari, the ability not to sin. And Scripture tells us this dogmatically, that He was able not to sin. It doesn't say that He wasn't temptable. The Scripture says He was temptable in His humanity. But yet, He never sinned. Which means that even though He was temptable, He was able not to sin. You're temptable and you sin every day. Assumably. Some people are like, ah. You sin every day. The fact that you just did that, there's your first one. (laughs) Liar. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So he's able, even though he's temptable, he was temptable in his incarnation, he was able not to sin. The only one who did that perfectly. And just so you're not confused by thinking, well, Jesus was able not to sin because he was God, right? That would be a lot of people's gut reaction, and it makes sense because he was God, but he was the God-man. But Hebrews 4.15 is talking about him being tested and tempted as a, in his flesh, in his humanity. So just don't be confused in saying to yourself, well, of course Jesus was perfect because he was God. Hebrews 4.15 is not talking about his deity. If it were, we'd have a problem reconciling Scripture upon, upon Scripture, Remember that scripture. Go to James 1.13. James 1.13. In other words, if Hebrews 4.15 were talking about his deity, we would have a problem with scripture on scripture. And I'll show you what I mean. There would be a break, a discontinuity, an incongruity, however you'd like to look at it, in scripture. That means things wouldn't reconcile. James 1.13 says it very clearly. Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted but never sinned, able not to sin. But James 1.13, just to make sure you don't think it was because he was God, in other words. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Jesus' humanity was temptable, Hebrews 4.15, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Okay, 
So God cannot be tempted. God is not able to sin. So the deity of Jesus Christ is not in view in Hebrews 4.15. So you have to understand that, that his humanity was temptable. That's why he can sympathize with us, because he was tempted, but he was able not to sin. Okay? He had flawless faith, in other words. So I just didn't want you to be confused on Jesus' abilities as a human being. He was tempted and was able not to sin. So that's a little theology proper for you, again, up on the board. non posse peccari, not able to sin, that's God's domain. Posse non peccari, able not to sin, that's Jesus, plus Jesus' humanity, plus the regenerate, sometimes, not always. And then non posse non peccari, not able to not sin, is a reference really to the unregenerate. Back to faith. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says, In walking, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. And so if Scripture, we know that Scripture says, hey, here's the right thing to do, and God the Holy Spirit's convicting you, here's the right thing to do. And James 4.17 says, if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, it's a sin, so you choose not to do it, guess what? It's a sin. So you got tempted, you failed, you are, even though you are sometimes able not to sin, you are also sometimes able to sin. But it's not as dire as non posse non peccari, which is not able not to sin, always. Okay? So faith, walking by faith is a big issue for us, not by sight. The issue then for believers, as we surveyed in Scripture on Thursday, is walking by faith, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, hence our previous principle up here on the board, And this is just another way to tease out what the Spirit's trying to say. Walking by faith. If you have faith, it's just saying, look at Jesus who had perfect faith. In other words, if 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 he's the end goal and he never sinned, he never strayed, and you're somewhere between salvation being sanctified and Jesus Christ being perfect, well, you know that you're on sort of a continuum, a slider, if you would. The more faith you have, the less likely you are to sin. The more able you are not to sin. Which is a faith issue. Which is walking by faith. So to walk by faith means that you're able not to sin. They're almost the same. Okay, It's the same idea. So if you have faith, will you do anything other than walk by it? In other words, if God gives us faith, and if that faith were 100% pure in us, isn't that faith the means of our perseverance? It is. If it were totally pure, would we ever be motivated to do anything other than God's will? We wouldn't. If it were pure, we'd be like Jesus. Even though we'd be tempted, we would never sin. Galatians 5, 16 and 17, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So concentrate for a moment. Let's bring some of this together. And please feel free to use the vehicle analogy here. If walking is analogous to being transported, which is something that happens to humble people through faith, then the big question is, Where are we being transported to? Where? If walking by faith means to be transported, to be sanctified, 
Where are we going? What's the end goal? What are we supposed to be doing? I mean, it's not like God will say to any of us, you know, just go walk in any direction. Not at all. God gives us directions in the Bible. That's why you're here, to help pick up those directions, to help be guided through a spiritual gift in the right direction. That's how it starts. So he helps us in every conceivable way by grace through faith. So on the end goal, what are our walking directions then? Since most people don't know where to begin looking, he also gave spiritual gifts for the specific purpose of guiding believers, giving them directions regarding walking, telling them which way to go. A lot of people, you know, they're, they're new to the faith, let's say, and they say, well, where I go? Where do I go? And, you know, they're sort of rambunctious. Where do I go? I just really, and they're running around the parking lot. Where am I going? Hey, settle down. Let me give you some driver directions here. Take a little, you know, take a load off. You know, we can't rush it. I've taught that multiple times in the past. You can't rush it either. Keep that stuff for uh, your personal life, you know, when you're climbing the corporate ladder. Mm, 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 the wheel, a little gerbil. Yeah, you can just do that and do that in work, at work. But don't bring that to the spiritual life. Because you're not going to be an overachiever in the spiritual life. That implies that you have a say in it, and you don't. So stop trying to be that person in the spiritual life. Just settle down. He'll give you the directions. But I'm just telling you straight up, you have to come and receive the grace that He's giving you. It's a huge mistake a lot of people make. They say, oh, all right, I'm saved. I don't, I don't need any other spiritual gift. I don't need a pastor. Man, that means I would have to submit to somebody. Heck with that. I'm not submitting to anybody. I'll take it from here. That's the problem. Because that means God the Holy Spirit screwed up when he ordained certain spiritual gifts like this one. Since most people don't know where to begin looking, he also gave spiritual gifts for the specific purpose of guiding believers, giving them directions regarding walking, telling them which way to go. Don't believe me? Here's the scripture. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. You realize I haven't said anything so far this morning without scriptural backing. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. I didn't do that. He did that. I didn't just fall out of bed one morning and say, you know, I think I could make a nice pulpit. I didn't even make this, by the way, but I could make a nice pulpit, and I think I'll just somehow find a space and make myself a pastor. I didn't ask for this. This is a tough life. Ask Tammy. It's a tough life. But I know that he gave it to me, and I know why he gave it to me, because it says it in Scripture, Ephesians 4.11, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service for the building up of the body of Christ. So he doesn't leave us alone. This is good. This is good news, right? So far in our running analogy, we have humility, faith, walking. We have noted spiritual gifts, helping with directions. And then destination with a question mark. Well, where am I going? Where is he taking me? What is our destination then? I mean... 
if we're going to be transported. I'm not talking about ultimate sanctification. I'm talking about getting and doing that thing in time. What do, why is he setting us apart? Why is he growing us in faith? Why does he give us more and more faith? Why does, as uh, Acts uh, 26.18 says, why is he sanctifying us by faith? Where's this all going? I mean, is this it? Just come to church and this is you being sanctified? This is the end goal? No. What is our destination? I mean, if we're going to be transported, sanctified by faith, shouldn't the Word of God explain to us beyond the shadow of a doubt where it is that he's taking us? Indeed. But as Matthew 7, 7, for example, says, a person must actually seek to find. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Mom! I can't find my toothbrush. <laughs> well, did you look? Yep. And you go, like, you just go, like, over there. It's, like, under the towel. Here it is. Oh! Oh, I didn't really look. Yeah, we know. You didn't really look. Kids are famous, right? I can't find my underwear. Did you look? I totally looked. Open up the drawer. There it is. You move like one sock over. There it is. So you actually have to seek to find. That's Scripture, too. We don't need to go there. You know that, Matthew 7. The Bible is very clear on this particular subject, and it's the primary reason why he leaves us here on earth after salvation. In other words, all right, we're all in the car. We've got some faith. He's sanctifying us. We're all convinced that he's sanctifying us. He's taking us from point A to point B. Well, what are we doing? Well, we go to church. That's what we do. Okay, that's good, but what else? You mean there's more? There's more. Your job is not just to come to church. Your spiritual life doesn't consist in how grand and awesome you are because you came and you struggled to get out of bed after last night to come to church. God is so proud of me. I made it to church. I'm like a giant now. Wow. For some people, that really is a big step, which is a shame. But this is just where you get equipped. So says Scripture. This is not the end goal of your spiritual life. Making it to church, unlike the religious people will tell you, is not the end goal. So why does he leave us here after salvation? Some have stalled and fallen short by wrongly supposing that the end goal is simply to keep learning and learning and learning. And while that certainly is a fundamental tenet to the spiritual life after salvation... You might say it's analogous to going to the gas station in your car when you need more fuel or some maintenance to keep it running strong. That's what going to church is. Filling up your gas tank. You know, getting maintenance done on your car. But who the heck has a car and doesn't drive anywhere? Is your whole goal in life to drive to the auto shop down the street every three months to get your oil changed, whether you need it or not? Or once a year to get your new sticker so you don't get pulled over? Is this, is this your spiritual life? Is this the analog to your spiritual life? Or is there more to it? Is going to the auto shop the end goal? Not at all. The end goal is back out on the road, traveling, meeting new people, spreading 
the gospel. Spreading the gospel. Coming to church isn't the ultimate goal of sanctification, evangelizing is. What do you think I'm doing? What do you think my job is? I take you to Scripture that proves to you a central theme in the whole Bible. The cross. Salvation through Jesus Christ. So as we were taught on Thursday, some of you need to change your perspective and just, frankly, go for it. Evangelize if there were no tomorrow. Live in the imminent return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-11, because it is imminent. He could come right now. Or right now. Or now. Or 50 years from now. We don't know. He doesn't want us to know. If he wanted us to know, he would have told us. But then you'd be different people. Well, I had about 30 years left. I think I'm going to blow the first 29, and I was get real serious. You know, like in school when you cram for tests? Oh, big final exam tomorrow. Oh, i got to cram. Yeah, that's wonderful for an education, by the way. I don't remember anything, but i got a B. I got a D and D's for diploma. It's good enough for me. Remember that? C's for cookie? Nobody? Cookie monster? The stuff that people do. People treat the spiritual life that way. Ah, I figure I'm a healthy guy. I'm going to live forever. What happened to Uncle Jimmy? Man, he had so much hope. He was going to do so much. He kept saying, you know, once I'm done with this next project, once I make it up the ladder this far, once I do this, once I have, you know, my house with my trophy spouse and my two and a half kids and my poodle and my three cats and my vegetable garden and my, I, I deserve a Porsche after all that hard work. So Porsche too, okay? Then, after 25 years of that, then I'll get serious with God. 24 years, 364 days, Doc says, you've got two weeks to live, you're going to die of cancer. Wow, that was a wonderful plan you had for you, for yourself, for your self-sanctifying life. The only thing you went for was you. But I went to church. <laughs> Good for you. You weren't listening. Evangelize if this, if, as if there were no tomorrow. Live in the imminent return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because it is imminent. Evangelize as if, as if someone else's life depends upon it, because it does. And remember Jesus' words, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's Matthew 28, 20. Let's read that wonderfully prophetic passage again in 1 Thessalonians 5. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5, 1. That's the one that is quoted there in the point on the board. First Thessalonians 5.1 So this helps us with this destination, right? We're all on board. We're getting in the car. All of you here are at the shop. This is the auto shop, right? You're getting your gas tanks filled. Some of you are getting, like, you know, wounds licked and everything else, and he's giving you more directions. Okay, the next leg of your journey is from here to the next gas station and to the next thing, and 
while you're there, you're going to see a little old man on the side of the road. I want you to give that guy the gospel. And you're going to see a couple little kids. Give them the gospel. And I don't mean just drive-by shootings with coins. Right? Roll the window down. Hurry up. Here he comes. What's that? He's got John 3.16 stamped on his forehead. What was that? Right? That's not evangelism. That's not evangelism at all. Where's the heart in that? You're like some of the, no offense, Jim, but you're like some of the postmen, right? They do it like that. Because they get paid for eight hours, but they do their route in like four. This is not, that's not the game. This is not what we do. I'm not saying you did that, Jim. I'm saying that's what the, he's like, hey, still a Marine. I'll charge that pulpit. I'll charge that hill. You know what I'm saying. Like, it's not like that. We're not, cut the game. Cut the garbage, right? First Thessalonians 5.1. Now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. What do you do when you're sober? You walk a straight line. What do you do when you're intoxicated? You walk a crooked line. Walking by the Spirit, straight line. Intoxicated by the world, crooked line. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation, of deliverance. Let us be sober up here on the board. We reviewed this. Paul is encouraging believers to be who God desires for each of us to be experientially, which is not intoxicated with the lusts of the flesh and the desires of the world. Verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died, echoes of our Great Commission, by the way, who, uh, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. What Paul is saying, in a nutshell, in this magnificent chapter, is that we need to stay focused as a group, encouraging one another. Encourage to do what exactly? What, what have I been saying now? Encourage you to do what? Just, just do this thing? Just come together? Just what? To abide in our Lord's own words. Go to Matthew 28, 18. Matthew 28, 18. This is what we're supposed to encourage. Look, he's saying, go out to the front lines where all the action is, where the cross is the greatest stumbling block in all of history, the greatest offense the world has ever known was Jesus Christ. Go out there holding the gospel, standing up as an ambassador, a soldier for Christ, and then when you're battle-worn, come back. Come back and be encouraged with one another. And tell each other stories. 
to encourage one another and share and fellowship. But this is not the end goal. This is the auto shop. This is where you get rejuvenated. For what? For the work of service. Matthew 28, 18. Well, what does service look like? Here we go. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, so do not question what I'm about to say. In other words, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That's it. That's your greatest commission in life. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there you have it, my friends. In Scripture, once again, I haven't said anything that was outside of the bounds of Scripture. No speculation here this morning. In our running car analogy, we have humility. Then we looked at faith. We have walking. We have spiritual gifts that help with getting directions. You have to seek and find. And then finally, the Bible gives us our destination in life. Not our ultimate destination. I'm not talking about ultimate sanctification. I'm talking about what are we doing? What does it mean to be sanctified? We are to be evangelizing people. Now, don't get lopsided here. There are a variety of spiritual gifts that need to be tended to so that when we do take our cars to the auto shop, there's got to be a mechanic, right? There has to be someone sweeping the garage floor, right? There has to be someone receiving customers, right? There has to be someone outside, a gas attendant pumping gas, right? There has to be a contractor that comes and fix the roof. So the auto shop is, right? All these kinds of things have to happen to make an auto shop function. And there's a lot of spiritual gifts, a variety, as the Spirit says. Go to uh, 1 Corinthians 12.4. So again, I don't want you to get lopsided because there are a variety of spiritual gifts that need to be tended to so that when we do take our cars to the shop, we can get fixed back up for our life on the road. On the road. I hate to liken us to a traveling salesman because I hate the idea of sales and gospel being put together, but that's more like the life. Our job is out there on the road, getting it done. Soldier works as well, front lines. 1 Corinthians 12.4, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. He's not confused. He's not saying some, hey, hey, here's the, here's the great commission, but now I want you to go sit over there and change lug nuts. Right? In other words, I don't even just get to sit and do just this job. The Great Commission's on my life, too. Of course, there's an emphasis on this for the equipping of the saints so that you can go out and do this thing. That's I'm doing my job, right? But there are a variety of gifts. Same spirit, though. And there are a variety of ministries in the same Lord. In other words, one master over all of the ministries there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, the church as a whole is to go out and evangelize. A lot of moving parts, eyes, ears, legs, you know, elbows. 
that whole body, which if you read 1 Corinthians 12, it gets into the body analogy, is supposed to be evangelizing. Some are on the front, some are really some communicators seem to be more on the front lines, but that's not true. How can I be the absolute front line if the fight is out there? So don't get lopsided and forget about all the other good things he has you doing in your own walks, even in your own spiritual gifts. All those things ought to remain, understanding that it's all for one big purpose, the Great Commission. So it is like the military in the sense that not every soldier carries a rifle. There are many working behind the scenes for the same objective. For the same objective. But yet not every soldier in the armed forces with the objective of whatever the generals have set forth or the commander-in-chief, they don't have the same job. But they all have to have that thing set before them, the joy set before him. And you're all to pick up your own cross, right? What's our prototype? Perfect faith for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before you, you endure your cross. Some of you have rifles, proper. Some have pistols. Some have bayonets. Some prefer battle axes. Just saying. Jim comes to mind. He's got it between his teeth. Sanctified as evangelists. If spreading the good news is our chief objective, then we must also ask ourselves what exactly might be the reason why we aren't doing more of it then. Why why aren't we doing more of it then? I mean, it's on my heart. It should be on yours. Why aren't we doing more of it? I would argue that most believers are still wrestling with the flesh via their human strength. That's the problem. That's why they're not doing more of it, because they're still wrestling with the flesh. That's what they do all day long. Reading more self-help books and bathroom devotionals rather than praying to God for wisdom. Most believers seem to be intoxicated with the world. And that is understandable given the flesh's affinity for worldly concerns. I had a conversation with uh, my friend, uh, Pastor Joe Chagru, who wrote to me the other day regarding the blog, Is It Okay to Question My Faith? Saying he really enjoyed it. And I told him that I'm not that popular right now. I just wrote Death and Taxes. Then I come out with is it okay to question my faith? What next? Oh, you wait. <laughs> he had me write three in a row last Monday. But I only put them out once a week because I know how overtaxed and burdened you are, and I don't want to overburden you. So he wrote to me on this. I responded. I told him that I'm not that popular right now, given all that the spirits had me teaching as of late. And he sent me a couple of verses for encouragement. Here's one. Galatians 5.10, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. You know what that takes? A big old gallon can of Blistex. Can't see it. Really, Lord, you're going to take care of this situation? Yep. Have faith. 
Okay. Okay. That's what Paul wrote in Galatians 5. And what does Galatians 5.1 say? It was for freedom that he set you free. And then look at verse 10. He says, don't worry about it. If someone's going after you, and they will, and they do, had a hellacious weekend this weekend, horrible things happening, things I have to consume in my soul that are just like hot pokers, red hot pokers. I'm to expect it. Somehow we have to take those realities and be free. And the only way that happens is if you have faith. If someone's going after you, if someone's doing something ungodly, and there's a whole other dynamic as a shepherd because, you know, there's all of you. And like Jesus told Peter, tend my sheep. There's a whole lot of things that I have to bear in the soul. And the temptation is to be back in bondage to that stuff. Back in bondage to the ridiculousness of all of you as well as, my, as, well as myself. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. We're going to keep doing stupid crap the whole, our whole lives. But I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. And it was a welcome bit of encouragement from one of the few individuals that truly understands the pressure one endures simply by standing behind a pulpit ordained by God to do good. But it also made me think about our previous point. Who and what is disturbing us? And remember the question on the board right here on the board. If spreading the good news is our chief objective, then we must ask ourselves exactly what might be the reason why we aren't doing more of it. Why aren't we doing more of it? Isn't it an issue of faith? It is. So that's a serious question for every believer to answer. And I need you to concentrate while reflecting on the following, just concentrate, make it very personal to your own soul. And I'm going to ask you a few questions and see what happens. What are you not doing when you're losing sleep over the details of life? What are you not doing? You know what you're not doing? You're not spreading the gospel. What are you not doing when you're spending all your time building your self-esteem through worldly accomplishments or focusing on self? You know what you're not doing? You're not spreading the gospel. What are you not doing when you're sitting in front of the television for hours being passively entertained or playing video games? Anyone want to guess? You're not spreading the gospel. I hope you get the point. When I look at this point now, or this world nowadays, all I see is a big, chaotic mess. It's heart-wrenching. I see a big, chaotic mess. A bunch of people that are completely deceived. Completely deceived. And it's a mess. People are so confused right now, they don't even know what gender bathroom to use anymore. And this is going on in the high schools, by the way. 
Oh, you're confused about your gender? Go ahead, go use the girls' room. 15, 16-year-old hormonal boy. I'm confused. Where does that take us? What's wrong with this world? That's how messed up we are. Complete mess. Why? Everybody, people like want to blame Paula. What a joke. Economics 101. So one more area that seems to derail a lot of believers that is frankly outside the scope of the Bible. And if you want to contend with me on this, feel free, but it's the area of politics. People blame politics for everything. But it's just economics. If we, the democratic nation, wanted different leaders, we'd vote them. Right? But we obviously don't. Or we obviously don't care enough. But that's neither here nor there. So politics is a big deal too. And again, it's shown me the place in the New Testament that it says we're to force feed our faith down the throats of our country's government. Is that evangelism or is that totalitarianism? Seriously, ask yourself that question. What are we trying to do? We're trying to set up a Christian regime in our country? Or do we want to let the values of the Bible permeate society and then maybe we'll elect the right government? No, let's just do this whole thing by force. Let's just spend all our time not spreading the gospel, throwing stones at a bunch of morons who were elected by a bunch of more morons called your neighbors, who you haven't been evangelizing. Oh, that's how it works. That's how it works. Jesus prayed in John 17, stating that we aren't of the world, but in it. Paul later wrote, our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20. So it's scripture that actually defines our relationship to human governments. Scripture defines our relationship to human governments. Jesus said, as I wrote in the recent blog that was oh so adored, called Death and Taxes. Got some colorful remarks on that one. That's always fun. Luke 20, 25, and he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. What's the problem? Stop trying to trap me. You know the story. What's the problem? This is my kingdom. This is your kingdom. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom on earth. Our God's in heaven. The God of this world is over here. What's the problem? We're in this world. We have to abide in it. We have to do It's their world. Ta-da! What's the big deal? Oh, but I want to force the kingdom of heaven on this wretched thing. That's just big scale this. That's just your flesh, once again, trying to fix up the pig. The pig isn't fixed from the outside in. The pig is changed from the heart and then bears fruit out. You want to change our country? Stop wasting your time on ridiculousness with politics. Go out there and evangelize. Go make good use of your time. Really quiet right now. 
Jesus never said, let's intermingle our currency, did he? Buy from me gold refined by fire, Revelation 3.18. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. Buy from me gold refined by fire. Our currency isn't even worldly. Everybody's like, oh, but I've got to have some greenbacks. I've got to have some Benjis. Really? This is what you're worried about? That the government's going to take your Benjis? I ain't giving my government a cheat on my taxes. Oh, that makes you a special person, doesn't it? That makes you what? What are you doing? Taking a stand, Robin Hood? What are you doing? You taking a stand now? On what values? Did Jesus ever say to do that kind of a thing? No. He said actually just the opposite. You're in the world. Treat the world with respect. Doesn't mean you have to tolerate them. Doesn't have to compromise your doctrines. It means you're in that world. Respect the ones that I actually ordained as leaders in your life, in the flesh. And let it be. Because if you sit there and spend all your time wrestling that thing, there's no time for the Great Commission. So Jesus never promoted political agendas because he knew that to influence a person, a person's soul, a person must be changed. Their heart. And if we're not even of the world, but rather ambassadors in it, why in the world would we ever be inordinately preoccupied with politics? Not to be flippant, but who cares? God's got everything under control anyways. Vote, pay your taxes, and be at peace. What else is there? And those are kind of your duties, right? Fundamentally. Losing sleep, or you're losing sleep over the fact that our presidential candidates are all grossly antagonistic to the Bible ought not surprise or upset you even. Now, take that with a grain of salt. I've almost thrown stuff at the television myself. <laughs> so I'm not saying that it's not going to have an effect on you. What I'm saying is don't... It doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. It's going to go that direction. It's supposed to go that direction. So we shouldn't be surprised or inordinately upset even. Accept it and sleep in peace. You know, like the King, and Ki King of Kings and Lord of Lords says in John 14, 27, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. So don't expect to find what you're looking for by being inordinately involved or upset or whatever about politics even. Look, you're an ambassador. You're not even, you're not even from this world. You're not even of this world. This isn't even, I mean, it's like, it's like you going to Russia right now and going, hey, push over. I'm here. I'm going to take care of this right now. And be like, what? What? You don't even live here. You're not even a citizen. Doesn't matter. I have the Bible. I'm changing this place right now. Right? What the heck's the difference? The only politics we ought ever be seriously concerned with are heavenly politics, if there's even such a thing, so to speak. Here's what our perspective on government should be. Go to Ephesians 6.5. Ephesians 6.5. Wow, did you hear that? 
Yeah. I think this thing's hitting it. it. Must be my manly beard. It's my manly beard. Oh, it's my jowls. I need to go back on my bicycle. It's dropping down in here like droopy. What? I am what I am. I'm at peace with it. Obviously, you're not. <laughs> Can you give us someone to teach us that doesn't have those problems? Nope. Ephesians 6.5. This is what our perspective on government should be. And this is what Scripture says. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So when Jesus said something like, give to Caesar what Caesar's, you're doing it for him. Why? Because he told you to. The problem is, the world will get you focused on the flesh. When Jesus says, focus on me, When you do this thing, you're doing it for me. I'm not saying it's... He doesn't even say it's necessarily, quote-unquote, fair, does he? Where's that in the Bible? He just says, I told you to do it, so do it for me. But I don't like that person. To the degree you did it, to the least of them, you did it to me. They're weak. They're pathetic. But I don't like them. Because they're weak. I know. Do it for me. Do it for me. Most people, I don't know, tune out, I guess. Our government and our society is wrought with ungodliness and even corruption, both moral and spiritual. Kind of describes all of you as individuals, too. Oh, Oh, oh. Are you actually surprised by this? So, like all the other, quote, distractions that keep you from not spreading the gospel, may I suggest that you stop wrestling with the darkness and focus on the light? What sanctification isn't up here on the board? I've got to pick a spot here. We aren't meant to conquer darkness. What's this world? Darkness. Why? The God of this world abides in darkness. We're not meant to conquer this country even. We're not meant to conquer the details. We're meant to be good slaves of Jesus Christ who said, do it for me. Take your eyes off of all the stuff. Do it for me. But my parents expect so much of me. So, who are they? Do it for me. But I had such high expectations. My professors say I'm such a brilliant individual and I should be going everywhere. I should be getting my MD, PhD, JD, triple, blah, 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 because I'm brilliant. And I don't want to let them down. Who are they? Half of them don't even believe in Jesus anyways. What are you doing? What are you doing? That's not sanctification. That's not you being set apart for God's purposes. That's the world setting you apart for its purposes. Wake up. 
just turn the lights on. It's not hard, but most of us don't like the light when we're in it. And we got, you know, whoa, hey. When we're drenched in sewage and we know it. Turn the lights off. Just give me a rheostat. Mm-hmm. Turn it down a little bit, right? I don't look that bad in the light or in the dim light. Turn the lights up. Flick it on. See what, see what you look at. See what you see in the mirror. That's all he's saying. Anyways, what sanctification isn't? We aren't meant to conquer darkness. Christ already did that for us. That's why we ought not spend all our time wrestling with something that's already dead to us. Romans 6, 10 to 14, we read that passage. I'll give you 11 up here on the board. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're not going to wrestle your flesh to death, okay? You're not going to go, it's never going to say uncle, uncle. It's not. If anything, it's getting worse. Anybody else? Anybody else's flesh getting worse? Anybody? I was just kidding. Todd, you're begged. <laughs> Seriously, everybody's flesh gets worse and worse as we get older. Because there's more like sewage in there. So we can't identify with that. We can't wrestle with that like it's a, some kind of a steer and you're grabbing the horns and look at me, I'm wrestling my flesh to... And then the whole time, your whole life is spent on that when the Great Commission is to ignore that and turn to the light. Hmm. Stated more figuratively, I think this is where we ended on Thursday, no matter how fast you run backwards, you'll never escape darkness until you simply turn around and face the light. Running backwards will just tie you out. What he's trying to do for all of you is change your perspective. So you might be asking, I think this is where I'll close, but you might be asking, but what does that mean? How do I know when I'm facing the darkness again? So let me amplify something that came up. I'll amplify that with something that came up last Tuesday even, something that most Americans can relate to. And I touched upon it with my funny little college work examples, you know. Sanctification from darkness, to whatever degree yourself, you're, you are self-conscious in the fleshly sense. And I hope you know what that means. Someone who's inordinately sort of, you know. To that same degree, you are facing the darkness. That viewpoint is the one the flesh has by nature. So it'll always try to get you to face it, even though the fruit is bad. Again, sanctification from darkness, to whatever degree you're self-conscious of yourself, in the fleshly sense, to that same degree you are facing the darkness. That viewpoint is the one that the flesh has by nature. So it'll always try to get you to face it, even though the fruit is bad. So, of course, self-consciousness is just one of an infinite number of possibilities, but I think it's one that a lot of you can relate to. Why? Because, up here on the board, the world absolutely specializes in making people feel self-conscious. You don't measure up. Don't believe me? Here, read Us magazine. Oh my God, I don't look anything like that. She's had 18 kids? Wow, and it says right here, no liposuction or plastic surgery at all. The whole thing's a lie. 
I thought all things alike. You know? I remember when I used to grace the covers of GQ. <laughs> what? <laughs> I was going to be funny, but I couldn't come up with a better name for the acronym GQ. Anyways. Goofy quiet? Not quiet. Anyways. The world absolutely specializes in making people feel self-conscious, and the results are never good, even if you fare well for a time. That's the great trap. That's the great trap. The world is going to sell you a bill of goods, and then when it's done with you, it's going to spit you out. No, it's going to vomit you out for someone younger and prettier or smarter and stronger or just plain better than you by their estimation. Oh, it may take a little while, you know, just enough to crush you when you finally figure it out that you invested all your time, you should have been evangelizing people, but you invested all your time in the trappings of this world, and then when it spits you out, you're going to go, holy, I can't, didn't that bald guy teach that one time? Didn't he try to, like, get me to think this way? And then by then it'll be too late because, you know, it's the little kid example. And I pray that it doesn't happen this way, but you know how that is. Don't put your finger in the socket. Oh, it hurt. No kidding. I just told you, don't put your finger in the socket. Don't run off and make well with the world. Don't be friends with the world because that's an enemy of God. Oh, it hurts. They threw me out. I'm just a a, a dried up rag to these people. Yeah. Didn't, Didn't you hear that like years ago? Well, you know, know. God's not dumb. Think about that just for a moment. God's not dumb. He doesn't make mistakes. If it's in here, then it's real. It's literally the best counsel you'll ever get. So stop going, okay, here, he's going to play his game. You know, I got my coffee. All right, I'm just going to open up my Bible, and I'm just going to read because I believe that I have faith that God's going to sanctify me. Oh, yeah, I don't like that one. Oh, no, I don't like that one. Oh, I like this one. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Booyah, I'm going to work. (laughs) Going to go buy the lie. Jesus is like, buy from me gold refined by fire. What? Can't hear you. Breaking up. (laughs) Must be a bad connection. Going through a tunnel, Jesus. Before you know it, you're self-conscious. You don't know who you are. And you're going to the men's room and you're a girl. Or vice versa. That's how it goes. Don't believe me? Read the end of Romans 1. By the end of it, they're patting each other on the back. Bravo! Bravo! What do you think? What do you think they're doing in our government right now? Patting everybody on the back for promoting all kinds of ridiculousness. All kinds of sins. Starting with sexual homosexual, bisexual, all these sins. I'm not judging anybody, but they're patting each other on the back. Bravo! What the? So these things, I guess I'll end with this. Just know this, that all these things that you're struggling with, the things that have held you back, 
the things that have kept you from evangelizing more people, being more excited about the gospel, not just coming to church and thinking that's sanctification. The things that have held you back are the things that you've learned. You know how I know that? Because little kids don't have that problem. That's how I know that. Little kids aren't confused about the pure things in life, about faith. Little kids, Jesus said, have the faith of this one. Have the, stop worrying about who's greater. Have the faith of this one, and you'll do well. So says Scripture. So please don't make that mistake of getting angry with me for just being doing my job and turning on a light. Don't get angry with me. Have a righteous indignation towards all the, the just to the world. Don't even pick people. I'm sure you, people will come up in your mind, but have a righteous indignation about the things that you were taught. And now you're having painfully to have to unlearn. But don't blame me. That stuff's slag. And he's just trying to purify you. And he's saying, dokimatsu. Examine yourself to see if there's any slag. And if there is, I'd like to scoop it off for you. And don't get mad at my messenger. Don't you dare get mad at that man with that spiritual gift who's faithfully serving you. Don't you dare do that thing, you coward. If he has something to say, listen to him. So just think of it that way. Hopefully you got some additional perspective. I do want to close with a video that we were going to close with Thursday, I think. Speaking of children, there's a reason why I have this one queued up. Because it's children singing about something so pure that I think we can all learn.
Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for a time to fellowship together as family in the unity of the faith. May our hearts be ever open and humbled by your sovereign grace and love. May our minds always be focused on the things above, as your magnificent word states. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Father, we pray for those still struggling in the faith, that they realize how much you love them and what your Son, our Lord and Savior, has accomplished for them on his cross. We pray that they be humbled and ultimately saved and sanctified. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thank you.